everyone, and welcome to Infinity and Beyond Episode 6. Sorry I didn't release a Christmas episode. I was planning on it, but then life took over and I ended up being too busy to get one out. But regardless, I do hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. On today's show, we have news. I continue explaining how I would fix Disney's Hollywood Studios' current identity crisis. Um, later, I give my initial thoughts of Knives Out Glass Onion straight out of the theater when I saw it in November in honor of the film's release on Netflix. And we continue our series, Explaining Gods in Disney Lore. So come with us as we go where very few have gone before. To infinity and beyond. and welcome to our news segment for today. Um, in news from Walt Disney World, the Walt Disney World Railroad has officially been reopened at Magic Kingdom Park um, since the um, initial resort-wide pandemic closure. This is a true classic and an essential to any castle park. I am so happy to see it return. Alongside the railroad's reopening, there's also a new piece of narration for the portion passing through Tron Light Cycle Run. I'll link to this in the show notes. The time has finally come... After all of this dreaded anticipation, the 23rd of this month, Splash Mountain will close permanently in Florida to make way for Tiana's Bayou Adventure in 2024. So if you're headed to the parks before then, or if you'll be in the area, maybe consider stopping by and taking your final rides. Um, this is very sad. Uh, Splash Mountain has been a classic at um, both Walt Disney World and Disneyland for almost 30 years now. Um, it has, I do believe, spent its time, though, and it is time for something new, and there is nothing better to replace it in that space than Princess and the Frog. Like, there literally is nothing else I would have been happy with them putting in that place, putting in place of Splash Mountain if it wasn't Princess and the Frog, so I'm very glad it is. But regardless, as I said, it is sad. Over at Moana Journey of Water in Epcot, construction continues fairly smoothly, with the 16-foot-tall Tevidi statue um, unveiled at the, that had was unveiled at D23 installed at the attraction. Um, it's actually really, really pretty. Um, I'm, I'm not going to link to it in the show notes because I'm not really sure if that would work with photo links. I've never tried that before, but um, make sure to go look it up yourselves. It's really, really neat. Um, over in Disney Springs, Sosa Family Cigar, a long-standing tenant of the shopping center, has shut its doors permanently. No word yet on what's going to replace the shop, um, but we can assume it will be something profitable and interesting due to the space's prime location in the area. On February 20th, Rock and Roller Coaster will be closing for a lengthy refurb. Um, not thurb, refurb, um, not reopening until later this summer. I'm very surprised that the current incarnation of the, of the Disney company hasn't replaced this attraction for something slightly more relevant, but while I do believe it is on its last legs, they seem to still be, they seem, they seem to still be attempting to keep this attraction, um, operational and updated, so much so as to have a half-year refurbishment dedicated to it. Construction on the interior of Toy Story Land's new barbecue restaurant, Roundup Rodeo, is um, for the most part completed, with the outside still um, without theming to the land. We can expect this experience to open at some point early this year um, in the coming months. 
Carousel Coffee has officially opened at the board at Disney's Boardwalk Resort and is the replacement to the space's previous tenant, Dundee Sundries. While it is only a small stop and coffee shop, it seems far too modern and sleek of an aesthetic to fit within the theming of the boardwalk, which is my family's home resort, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is short-lived. In other resort news, um, Chef Mickey's at the Contemporary will return to buffet dining in March of this year after suspending that feature of the restaurant since the resort closure from the COVID-19 pandemic. Along with this, Character Dining will also be returning at Cinderella's Royal Table. Um, we can expect this around the same time as the Chef Mickey's change. In news from Disney's Animal Kingdom, reportedly with the successful release of Avatar Way of Water, the long-awaited sequel to the highest-grossing film of all time, including its re-release into theaters, Avatar, James Cameron, those film's visionary, has begun talks with Bob Iger, the newly reappointed CEO of the Disney Company, about possible new Way of Water additions to the attraction film for Flight of Passage. Um, he apparently likes the idea, but nothing has been decided at this point. That is all we know for the moment being. Also, in more recent news from Animal Kingdom, Benny, a rare endangered Okapi calf, has made his way out for the first time onto the savannah this week at Animal Kingdom Lodge. Um, in news from Disneyland Resort, World of Color 1 is set to debut January 7th at Disney California Adventure Park. Um, this new version of the fan-favorite nighttime spectacular will include scenes dedicated to new IPs such as Moana, Encanto, Soul, and Star Wars. Branching outside of our regular news for this segment, over the holiday weekend, MCU star Jeremy Renner was ran over by a snowplow. And while stable, as far as most know, he is still in the ICU. So thoughts and prayers to him and his family, obviously. Um, on a much happier note, though, over at Universal um, Studios Hollywood, Super Nintendo World is set to open in February of this year. And while I will not get to experience this until it opens in Florida, I cannot wait to see it when I can. From seeing photos and videos out of um, Japan, it looks beyond incredible. Um, I cannot wait. But that is going to do it for news today. On with the show. So when we left off last week, I was talking about my retheme of Echo Lake. Hey everybody, Future Jacks here. I know this is a little early in the recording for me to be doing this, but I found a mistake. I do not record this podcast weekly. Um, I just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> little mistake on my part. And how I was planning on changing the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular. As I often said in the last episode, go with me here. I love the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular. It has always been incredibly important to my family, and I would honestly be sad to see it go. But regardless, it has lived its time. I think it's the only um, opening day attraction left in the park. Or original, I'm not sure if it was opening day or not. But regardless, something new needs to take its place. Now I think we have two options. We either put in its set a brand new dark ride befitting of our new animation theme, which I think could possibly, um, possibly be considered redundant due to Runaway Railway being right around the corner. Or another option is this. 
we bring Indiana Jones Adventure from California to Hollywood Studios, creating a sort of mini Lucasfilm land, closing off the Echo Lake entrance, and hiding the show building, moving the true entrance to somewhere near where Backlot Express currently sits. While this would be an interesting idea to add more appeal to the park, it wouldn't ever happen, simply on the basis that it's a dumb decision. Let me explain. Over in Animal Kingdom, Imagineering is planning a long overdue retheme of Dino Land USA, the flagship attraction of that land being Dinosaur. Dinosaur was built in response to the success of Indiana Jones Adventure and Disneyland in the 90s. Due to this, both of these attractions have an identical track layout as well as ride system. So if Dinoland were to become an area fitting of Indy, it would fit like a glove to the current attraction in that space, saving Disney a significant amount of money. I personally would love it if they did this. When I went to the California parks for the first time in April, I loved the Indiana Jones Adventure. In its time, it was arguably one of the most technologically advanced attractions in the world. Over the years, it has obviously been topped, but there is still innovation to be had in that space. As time has passed, a, one pro a once prominent effect of the Indiana Jones Adventure went dark, and it was never repaired. It had to do with the three doors you come up on the attraction, the middle door opening to allow you through. I think this is um, near the scene where you look into the eyes of Mara and the true thrill of the attraction begins. Um, I, there used to be an effect in this area that was abandoned, and I do not fully understand it, therefore I cannot explain it to you. But in rebuilding this attraction, what if they could repair that effect, as well as um, enhance this new rendition of the attraction with more modern technology just all around? Um, I think it would be really great. Long story short, I think there are many reasons to bring the Indiana Jones adventure to Animal Kingdom, given it remains a fan favorite, it remains a fan favorite among guests. Um, yet, alas, there seems to be early plans brewing and imagineering to bring Zootopia to Dino Land against the strong advisement of the, parts, of the park's brilliant visionary, Joe Rohde. Um, if this comes to pass and Dinosaur becomes a Zootopia attraction, then I would say, without a doubt, bring the Indiana Jones adventure to Hollywood Studios. If it did come to pass, though, that it ended up where it seems to belong, in my opinion, then I would add a new dark ride in the Hollywood Studios space. Um, what this new, brand new, original attraction uh, would entail, I am not quite sure, but I thought I would leave that up to you. We'll get back to that later. Finishing up the lake, we loop back around to the Hyperion Theater as well as the Mickey Shorts Theater and the Celebrity Spotlight meet and greet space. As for the Mickey Shorts Theater, what its name entails is exactly what I think it should be, yet it very much has not been living up to that name, playing the same short vacation fun since its opening in 2020. My idea for the space is that it should play a variety of Mickey and Friends shorts, ranging from vintage to brand new. And if the theater reaches capacity, then they would simply close the doors and not allow any more guests in until the space became free. This would be a much appreciated break from the spring, and summer, and fall, and sometimes winter heat in Florida, as well as a place for parents to take their exhausted little ones as well as themselves to relax for a period. But that's important when I say for a period. Depending on how Disney would like to handle this, you would either get a notification on your phone and or be given a physical buzzer notifying you of when your time in the theater is up, so you may clear out to make room for other guests. This would most likely be a notification from MDE or My Disney Experience rather than a physical buzzer for logistical reasons, but I do think Disney is clearly bad at mobile technology. 
not not great, bad at it. And I think it would be wonderful if we could adapt to use our phones less in relation to a Disney Resort visit. Now, the Hyperion Theater. This is a difficult one for me on the account that Hollywood Studios already has a generous amount of sit-down shows as of currently in real life as well as in our revamped version of the park. Um, but on the other hand, we have a brand new ride just across the lake and there isn't much land on which to build a show building in this part of Echo Lake. So I think what should be done is revamp the building to resemble the Carthay Circle Theater, similar to what they have in California Adventure, and make it like um, a like it is in California, a more high-end restaurant. If played correctly, I think this would be a wonderful tie-in to our new animation theme for Echo Lake. Given Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Disney's first animated feature, as well as the very first animated feature of all time, premiered there. This is definitely one of my shakier ideas, because I'm not fully sure of how this would look um, fitting into the new animation theme of Echo Lake, or how it would complement the Chinese um, Grauman's Theater, but I think they got that over Grauman's Chinese Theater. <laughs> but if the Imagineers can make it work, which I'm confident they can do nearly anything, it would be great. And all that's left there would be to change up the architecture around Echo Lake to fit our new animation theme. Um, two possible ideas for this is that it's a film studio for animated characters, such as seen in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, I personally would rather not see this version because we're trying to transition the park out of the sort of um, Hollywood active studio sort of look that it's had for a super long time. But if not um, this Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit sort of look, then simply make it a new take on a Toontown type land, yet less exaggerated, which I think will be best. Um, with all of this for Echo Lake, the one thing I forgot to mention is the giant dinosaur in the middle, Gertie. Um, you probably didn't know the dinosaur had a name. But Gertie the Dinosaur was an animated short film released in 1914 as part of the vaudeville act of a man named Windsor McKay. The novelty was that the dinosaur would seemingly obey the commands of Windsor if timed correctly with the animation. The film was far ahead of its time and is a staple in animation as well as filmmaking history, influencing the next generation of animation filmmakers, including that of Walt Disney. Okay, now we are finally moving on. Next up, we are heading past Indy toward Backlot Express and Star Tours. If we were to bring the Indiana Jones to Hollywood, the Indiana Jones Adventure to Hollywood Studios, then I would think we should split this area between Backlot and Muppets Courtyard into two halves, creating an Indiana Jones mini land that then morphs into Star Tours. Executing this would require the removal of Backlot Express and/or a significant reimagining, in Disney's words. Um, bringing the space greatly down in size. Lately, especially on the front of Star Wars, Disney has been leaning even more than usual into cohesive theming. Not just in the respect that everything looks correct and complements each other in the space, but that every area tells a story. Everything you see has a purpose for being there in the context of the land or attraction. In Hollywood Studios, an example of this is Galaxy's Edge. With the opening of that land, um, this area in between Echo Lake and Grand Avenue has felt out of place. In response to this, I would remove the Jedi Training Academy and re-theme re Tatooine Traders to fit the look of the rest of the attraction. Bleeding in closer um, to Grand Avenue and Muppets Courtyard, um, we have Commissary Lane, which ends in Sci-Fi Dine-In. 
we can and should keep the sci-fi dine-in. It is a staple, just like the 50s primetime cafe. Um, our Indiana Jones area is so far separated, it won't affect the theming, and there already is a natural transition in place between Star Tours and Grand Avenue that will only become more cohesive without tattooing trainers in the mix. Not trainers, traders in the mix. So nothing that we have um, to do there. Headed into Grand Avenue and Muppets Courtyard. This area lost a lot of identity after the removal of the Streets of America. Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, Light Motors, Lights Motors Action, and more attractions to make way for Galaxy's Edge and Toy Story Land. This area we're looking at now, um, in Muppets Courtyard and Grand Avenue, is the remnants of what was once half of the park. There are a lot of people that are now considering this section simply an expansion pad for Galaxy's Edge that could extend this sector up to Star Tours. While this does make sense, I find the Muppets highly underutilized by Disney, especially in the parks. And while this area does need quite a bit of work, I feel like it could be done. Um, first off, I would remove Muppet Vision. Wait. Once again, before you get all up in arms, let me explain. The idea of having the Muppet Theater built in the park with animatronic Statler and Waldorf is extraordinary. I want it just as bad as you do. Yet the current incarnation of this attraction is outdated and needs change. What I'm proposing is instead of this dated 3D movie, we put in a real Muppet show. Animatronics like Statler and Waldorf for every character, and an intro mirroring that of the original televised Muppet show. Other than that, I'm not sure of specifics, but imagine physical Muppets with no puppeteer performing in the theater. The odds of this are slim to none. It is highly probable that within the next few years, Grand Avenue is removed along with the Muppets Courtyard. But in the event that there is hope, I would adore this attraction. Now, as far as for the rest of the area, we have Pizza Rizzo, Mama Melrose, and the Muppet Vision Gift Shop Stage 1 Company Store. This whole area, I think, should become a land dedicated to the Muppets. Mama Melrose, while a cute restaurant, I would close, and Stage 1 Company Store would be demolished. Our new Muppet show being given its own dedicated gift shop. Um, that would be significantly smaller. Um... Pizza Rizzo remains, but would be like Hollywood and Vine, rethemed and given a brand new menu. Meaning, yes, the days of Pizza Rizzo's less than stellar cuisine um, would be over. This new space would be less of a restaurant and more of a family-friendly sort of bar or lounge with drinks and simple food options like some variation on burgers and fries, chicken wings, kettle corn, average appetizer material. And it would be dedicated to Bunsen and Beaker who would be using this space as a new venture in scientific discovery. This, in my mind, would be somewhat similar um, in some ways to Pim's Test Kitchen in California, minus the growing and shrinking novelty, with more zany characteristics to, to fit the Muppets. And more specifically, Bunsen and Beaker. Think, think about it. Bubbling cocktails and mocktails, delicious food and beverage options, but with a twist culinary effects like dry ice steam and things that happen physically in the room when you order a certain item off the menu, like at Trader Sam's in Florida as well as California. This space will be filled with Easter eggs and theming, like some mad scientist lab was seemingly repurposed into this restaurant lounge on a whim. Um, an idea to name this new experience, in my opinion, will be Bunsen and Beaker's Laboratory Lounge. With Stage 1 Company Store gone, we have a fairly large space open now in the center of the courtyard in which you could put anything from quick service locations to a little courtyard type mini park area or maybe extra land on which to put a new gift shop for the Muppet Theater. 
Um, there's a lot of ideas to work with when it comes to that space. But I think um, aside from adding a little bit of land or put, using a little bit of land to build that gift shop, I think they should add some sort of courtyard um, mini park area. Move the fountain from in front of the theater um, to the center of this park area. Maybe change out the Miss Piggy Statue of Liberty centerpiece. And then around it, create some sort of appealing play area or splash zone, like over in Storybook Circus at Magic Kingdom. Where Mama Melrose is now, we remove that restaurant in its current incarnation, expand and renovate it to become a variation on a concept originally planned for Muppets Courtyard far earlier in Hollywood Studios history. This restaurant was to be called Swedish Chef's Cooking School, featuring a Swedish chef teaching you to cook as you ate while everything unsurprisingly, goes terribly wrong. This new version of the idea would remove the cooking school um, concept, but instead introduced a new concept. Imagine that the restaurant is modeled like a large floor plan style take on an old-fashioned diner, where you can see the cook behind the counter. Our cook just so happens to be the Swedish chef. Possibly, if the restaurant was split into different rooms, there would be separate effects some possibly including that of Gonzo and his chicken girlfriend Camilla, um, as to pay homage to what was originally supposed to be housed where Pizza Rizzo is today, and our Bunsen and Beaker experience sits in this theoretical Hollywood studios, the great Gonzo's Pizza Pandemonium Parlor. I would call this new sit-down the Swedish Chef's Discombobulation Diner. Um, a new staple of these Muppet dining locations would be in-house effects, Doors bursting open, sound effects, controlled explosions, you name it. Because that is for years, among other things, what has made the Muppets what they are. The appeal of total chaos for comedy. And that is Muppets Courtyard. Grand Avenue can stay the same. Once again, I like the 40s, 50s city sort of aesthetic. And there isn't any visible soundstage architecture in the area. I think the contrast between Galaxy's Edge through that tunnel and Grand Avenue really contributes to the reveal and wow factor after entering the land, and since they're separated from each other, there's no cross-contamination when it comes to theming. It actually works really well. Next up, we have Galaxy's Edge, but we will have to save that for next time as we are out of time for this segment today. Now, on with the show! Okay, so this is a recording I made shortly after Thanksgiving in November, um, the day I saw Glass Onion during its run in theaters. Now that it is officially out on Netflix, where I already watched it again, if you can't tell, I love these movies, I will be giving my initial thoughts on the film. Uh, we'll have a more at-length discussion on another episode, but there are some things I would like to discuss first in this segment before we cover Glass Onion in more detail, such as <coughs> Stranger Things. <coughs> Um, so for now, this is all you're gonna get. Just wanted to get that out of the way, but one last thing before we start. Major spoiler warning again. I will put a spoiler skip timestamp in the show notes like I did in the last episode, so pause here and go look at that. Skip to the theory if you haven't seen the movie yet. Also, once again, as I say when it comes to spoilers, not my fault if you ruin it for yourself. Now, hope you enjoy. 
Okay, so I just got back from seeing Knives Out Glass Onion, and this is my um, initial thoughts of the film, I guess. <clears throat> I really enjoyed it. I thought it was not as good as the first film. Um, it had a different sort of feel to it in terms of style and things like that. Um, but regardless of it being different than Knives Out, because I really don't think you could replicate what that original film had, um, or at least not very easily, it was still a very, very good film. I very much enjoyed it, and it had the, I mean, Blanc as a character maintained his sort of charm, and I don't know, I really did like it as a huge fan of the first movie. I thought this very much was a was a respectable sequel um and I genuinely it I liked it enough that if Ryan Johnson keeps making them I would love 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 to see more um and I, I mean I've I've been of the mind for a long time that we need new original um franchises <clears throat> like companies especially like Disney for the past few years have been running off of nostalgia we have more Star Wars um, the MCU has been going on for 15 years now, 16 years. Um, we have, like, the final Indiana Jones movie coming out soon. The, and everything's, like, we have, what is it? Um, Mission Impossible is another very good example from a different studio besides Disney. Um, and that, what is that? The, uh, their eighth, ninth film? I have no idea, but we've been running off of old franchises and nostalgia, and that doesn't change the fact that those movies were great, but we always have to remember that those movies came from a jumping-off point. One movie that did really, really well, or eventually did really, really well, has stemmed into these franchises, and at this point, they're declining in popularity because that's naturally what happens. It's been a long time, and all the old franchises are still holding a place in our hearts and still should be added to sometimes, especially things like Star Wars. It'll keep going on forever. But I just, I don't know. I feel like we need more new, fresh content entering the media space, and Knives Out really looks like it's shaping up to be what could be one of these, our new, fresh franchises. Um, <clears throat> have a murder mystery with Blanc coming out every few years, and it would, I mean, I don't know, I feel like it's a really, really good opportunity, and Ryan Johnson is amazing at crafting these things. <clears throat> Even though it couldn't replicate what the first film had, it still very much held a certain style that it can just, I've never seen anywhere else. Like, a Knives Out film has this sort of feeling around it that this movie definitely had, I felt that. Um, I don't know, I thought it was very good. Um, I loved all the characters. I did not expect the twist of the character, oh, just getting to it here. I am going to have a spoiler warning for this, obviously. I've probably introduced this in this bonus episode. Not a bonus episode. But there's going to be spoilers. But I'm just letting you know, at this point in this recording, spoilers begin in 3, 2, 1. I did not expect the plot twist of um, Andy being um, her si her twin sister, and that Andy's actually dead. Because I had gotten to the point in the movie where I was like, 
so where's the murder? I mean, I've been watching this for half an hour, and there's no semblance of their, not murderer, I said, um, I meant to say murder. Like, I've been watching this for half an hour, and there's no semblance of anyone who's been murdered. Like, and this is a murder mystery, inherently. I mean, you had, crap, what was his name? Um, Dave Bautista's character in the film, who was, um, uh, this is terrible for me to be recording, but you all Google it, it'll be online. Ugh, that annoys me. If I, I'm sure I'll mention it somewhere else in the episode, but his name was Duke. Dave Bautista's character was clearly murdered, that seemed pretty obvious, but he was enough of a side character that you could see he was not going to be the main murder focus. He was not a Harlan Thrombey sort of type character. And when it came to Andy, she definitely did qualify as that sort of t high tier murder. Um, you did kind of stem out, not you, they did kind of stem out of the sort of humble, um, not humble, not, that's not the right word, um, contained, I should say, focus of the first film. The first film was talking about like a murder mystery writer who lives somewhere out in the country of uh, New England somewhere. And that isn't really affecting world round outside of this family. Um, the Even though it did have a, a reach that was um, respectable, it wasn't like it was nothing, but it was not a some world-shattering event, which I really, really like. Uh, I tend to not like when movies are like, introduce some virus or something that's totally unrealistic, could not happen in real life, even though the franchise is known to some time, is to be stemmed in a plot growing from our reality, like a semblance of this world, not some sort of fantasy. But in this film, I very, it was, it was very, um, well done, the way they introduced this fuel source or whatever, it felt like it had, um, like it could happen in real life. It didn't feel outlandish. Um, a good example of the, of what I'm talking about is in Mission Impossible 2, I think. They introduced this super virus that they're going to release to blow up the world, not blow up the world, like infect the world or something. And that felt very outlandish to me in the way they handled that. It's the worst film in the franchise, in my opinion, and I've heard other people say the same thing, too. But I I was worried that when it came to this movie, they were going to go create some outlandish murder of, like, some like, huge political figure or make it about a virus or space travel or, I mean, something that was very far outside of what we've been told previously is the sector Knives Out tends to play in, um, <clears throat> which I shouldn't say that it has a sector, there's only been one film, but I feel like at this point you kind of understand what I'm saying. I, I am glad that they kind of, they did keep it contained, yet it still did have branching consequences if things did get out of hand, which they didn't end up getting out of hand. It had a very satisfying ending, and that Blanc really did seem at a loss, and yet he still came through like he always does, and the murder was, not the murder, the murder had been solved, 
but the whole mystery came to a conclusion um, still by his understanding of what happened. Um, I thought it was funny when he solved it. Um, why are all their names escaping me? Ed, I can remember the actors' names. I can't remember the characters' names. Miles. That Miles Braun. That was his name. Um, but Edward Norton's character, Miles Braun, he when he had that whole murder mystery set up, he hired a famous author to write it. Blanc solved it within the first five minutes before it even began. Um, that was hilarious. All the characters' way, the way that they hung on to him, that they wouldn't let go, um, and I, to, cause he gave them the money and the power and they just couldn't, they couldn't get away from him. Um, I really loved how that was executed. It felt real. It felt like, it didn't feel like they were all, it felt like they didn't like it. They weren't all portrayed as just straight up terrible people, but, they also weren't portrayed as um innocent i should say they really did they didn't seem like they had they definitely were at fault but you could see that they were not um <clears throat> they were at fault but they weren't they weren't the villains of the story it wasn't like a multiple antagonist storyline where sort of everyone was the villain except this one person which I I saw I liked the fact that Andy's sister clearly didn't like them, but she was still um, she was working to defeat Miles, not the rest of the group. The rest of the group were freed from him finally and didn't have to keep um, hanging on to his every word and his will, even like, no matter how much it was eating them up inside. That is the common thread here. Every single one of you is holding on for dear life to Miles Bryan's golden titties. But I think that's about all the time we have for first thoughts or future me when he's editing our bonus episode is going to be very upset. But that's what I thought of it. I thought it was very good. I would love if they would turn it into a franchise. And I don't know. I, it wasn't as good as the first one, but it definitely was great and i cannot wait to watch it again when it comes out on netflix and those are my initial thoughts on with the show everyone and welcome back to the episode um for those of you who are new this is the part of the show where i give you all a disney marvel or star wars theory and right now we are deep into a series explaining gods in disney lore um for those who haven't been with us for the past few episodes i would recommend you go back and listen to those theories or i believe you are bound to be lost hearing this one okay now that that's out of the way um when i left off i was about to explain um the beginning of the world and or universe actually not universe the beginning of earth um in the dcu disney connected universe so here it is at the beginning of the world when there was only water the mother island emerged at first as deca we see in moana she is capable of leaving her island 
so I think she traveled, spreading her lava and growing barren islands from the ocean. As Grandmother Tala says, she was the beating heart of creation. After the beginning of the world came the Titans. While they reigned, there could be no balance, because as the product of this early world, they suppressed life. Then Zeus came and defeated the Titans. This marked the end of the early world as water rose up to claim balance. From this balance, life could thrive, and the ocean became the most powerful force on the planet. With the dawn of life, the heart of Tefiti came as well. Then, as Grandmother Tala's story tells, Tefiti spread life to the world, because she literally is the physical manifestation of life, and in some circumstances, death. I would think she plays the role of Mother Nature in the DCU. This is also kind of hinted at in the idea that she is referred to as the Mother Island, and she spread life to the world. This is what she was doing in that forest in the Firebird Suite. After the early world, but before Maui stole the heart, she was playing the role of Mother Nature in transferring the seasons from winter to spring across the world. Okay, phew, we are finally done with that. Now that we are done explaining Tefiti, the ocean, and the role that gods have on basic aspects of the DCU, it is finally time to talk about some more rogue gods. And the first one I would like to cover is... The ever impressive... The but never Yes, I think the genie is a god, and here is why. The term genie was adapted from the Islamic jinn, who are said to be powerful beings usually portrayed as some sort of spirit. Meaning in their original context, genies are not gods. But I think in the DCU, um, ours is, and here is why. Um, in the entirety of Aladdin and its to-rectivideo sequels, if we count them as canon, we never see mention of another genie, except for when Jafar wishes to become one. Within Jafar's search for the lamp in the film, we see there only seems to be one genie, which is why he puts so much weight on finding it. This in itself diverges from the original folklore of the jinn, being that in Islamic folklore, there are many of them. Along with this, when the genie is released from the lamp in Aladdin, he says these words. Ten thousand years will give you such a crick in the neck! Meaning, the last master he had would have been ten thousand years ago. This master must have been the one who placed him in the Cave of Wonders, being that the only one who could enter the cave was... One whose worth lies far within, the diamond in the rough. And from modern day, it is historically proven that the first signs of evolved human life were a matter of thousands of years from modern day, let alone the ancient Middle East where Aladdin takes place. The prophecy didn't come to pass until Aladdin. Why would they do this, though? What was their reasoning for locking away the genie? Well, in a previous theory, I equated the genie to the ocean, in the fact that the ocean must follow the rule of the one with the trident, same as the genie with the lamp. But what if I went a step even further to say that what if these items are, synced, are linked by simply more than coincidence? Go with me here. The trident was originally wielded by Poseidon, an Olympian god. So if he could control the ocean, one of the most powerful aspects of reality in the DCU, what if the lamp was in a way of very similar usage? I explained in a previous theory the list of things that can strip a god of its immortality. This list included a rule that stated that gods could be taken out of the Olympian pantheon if they were proven unworthy. This could be the one this could be one option to explain the genie's imprisonment but the gods bound him due to the fact that he was proven unworthy. 
This clearly didn't take away his immortality, but it did leave him imprisoned. It is a stretch, I know, but think about it. There is another god that was removed from the Olympian pantheon, unwelcome on Olympus, yet also retained his immortality. Hades. As I previously said, I thought Hades wasn't even truly a god, but simply a powerful individual that lost his godship. The evidence to support this being he does not take residence on Olympus, but ironically, nearly as far from it as possible. And he doesn't share the god glow exhibited on all of the gods in Hercules. Um, the gods in Hercules held a shining glow of their respective color, a glow Hercules received as he completed his heroic task in the river Styx and lost when he decided to live on Earth with Meg. Hades doesn't have this glow, nor does Genie, though each do hold respective colors just like the other gods, gray and blue. To think that the genie was once part of the Olympian pantheon is a slight stretch of the imagination, but Disney's interpretation of Greek mythology is far from perfect, as well as their interpretation as, as, of Islamic folklore in Aladdin. In fact, you could say they simply drew inspiration from these original sources, but for the most part, Disney's stories stand alone, so I would like to think this is possible within the walls of the DCU. Next time, we will delve into the um, elemental spirits of Frozen, but for today, I'm going to leave it as a shorter theory so I can use this time to discuss some new additions that have come and are coming to the show. First off, jumping right into it, we now have an Instagram. Handle Infinity and Beyond Pod, all one word. A link will be in the show notes. Um, for those of you who want to and or can, I will be posting on there fairly regularly, so be watching and follow if you want. Um, and that's just to start us up. Okay, one quick thing um, that I forgot to mention here. So remember back in our main segment when I mentioned that I was going to leave it up to you what to put in the place of the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular if the Indiana Jones adventure eventually ended up in Animal Kingdom? Well, that was related to our Instagram account. I will put a um, page up on there where you all can comment and give me your ideas on what you would replace it with if and when um, the attraction ends up in Animal Kingdom, where I personally think it belongs. And remember to keep it related to our animation theme um, that we have going on in Echo Lake right now. I'll make sure to include that in the instructions on the post, but I was just going to go ahead and say it here. Now, on to the rest of the episode. Next up is the really big news. A thing I've been thinking about since before the idea of this podcast even came to be. A YouTube channel. We do not have a channel yet, but we will really soon. And that is where the majority of the content in relation to the Disney cruise I am taking next month will be found, um, aside from a bonus episode here. Also new news. My life is not crazy exciting all the time, so the YouTube channel will not be consistently active like I'm trying to be with the podcast. But I hope to have some sort of video out periodically, and I'm playing around with the idea of maybe posting some recorded podcast interviews, or having a video format upload of the show for those who can't, for whatever reason, listen to it wherever you are right now. Um, for the most part, though, as those ideas are still kind of up in the air, uploads once um, I'm, it's first set up currently um, will usually be vlog-related, due to the fact video editing is not my strong suit and vlogging takes less of that. Um, among other reasons. As I said, no YouTube account up yet. Don't go looking. You won't find one. Um, I'll make sure to let you know when it is up and running, though. But that is all my announcements for now. On to the end of the episode.
that's going to do it for this episode. As always, I really hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to rate and review, subscribe if you haven't already, and to now follow us on Instagram at infinityandbeyondpod, all one word, link in the show notes. Once again, sorry about no episode last month. I owe you a Christmas special next year. Regardless, though, I hope you had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Have a magical day and a great big beautiful tomorrow to infinity and beyond.